You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 19, where Matt Murdock must argue the case of his life, defending his secret identity against a reporter determined to expose it to the world. Welcome, one and all, to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show all about the man without fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, and as usual, you can call me Dirt McGirt, or Dave if you wish. This week, we kind of come to an end of an unofficial mini-phase in our Frank Miller read-through, the last story reprinted in the Mark for Death trade paperback, which I talked about reading a few episodes back. It's kind of a bittersweet even though slightly irrelevant tidbit, because that trade was so important to forming a stronger bond with the character of Daredevil, and was probably one of two major lodestones in eventually making this show. It's not that it reignited my fandom for Daredevil, because that never really went away, but it pushed it into different directions, namely back issues. And that's when I began to create, I guess, a more full Daredevil reading experience. And speaking of full experiences, last week, toward the end of the episode, as I talked about Daredevil Road Warrior, you may or may not have heard strange background noises. If it sounded like a vicious beast was gnawing on a bone like a Rancor monster, well, it was a vicious beast. At least a beast that likes to cuddle and give kisses. That was my dog Lucy, who slipped into the room as I recorded. Typically, she's not allowed in here when I'm recording, uh, but my wife was out of the house, so I had to, you know, keep an eye on her as a responsible pet parent. I didn't know until I was editing the show that the microphone picked up that much noise, so I'm very sorry for the gnawing sounds. And speaking of last week, that story left us with a heck of a cliffhanger. The Hulk had pretty much beaten Daredevil to a pulp and then leapt off to parts unknown, and when we last saw Hornhead, EMTs and medical technicians were trying to save the life of the man without fear. At the same time, Daily Bugle reporter Ben Urich has pieced together that Matt Murdock and Daredevil are one and the same, so now Daredevil is fighting for his life in the hospital and his secret identity is on the verge of being exposed to the world, and that is where we will be picking up with Daredevil 164, which boasts a bevy of Marvel Universe cameos. All of that right after this podcast promo break. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Oh, put Cap's shield there. <laughs> anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! No! Ah! Oh! Ah! 
Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die. They just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. I feel a little guilty going to a promo break so early with such a short preamble, but c'est la vie. We are back now, ready to take a look at Daredevil 164, the May 1980 issue. That's right, we have arrived in the 80s, the age of greed and excess. And you know, we've seen Daredevil's origin told a few times now, especially on this show. I mean, we had the original telling in issue 1, uh, there was a flashback thrown in there somewhere, and Man Without Fear. And that's omitting Daredevil number 53, where Gene Colan redrew essentially the entire original script of the first issue. And yet, here we are again, with another retelling of his famous origin story. Now, this is much more condensed than Man Without Fear, but expanded from the first issue. And to tell the truth, I actually thought about skipping this issue before I realized that, well, this is a ripe opportunity to kind of compare and contrast the different tellings that we've covered so far. And here is another layer of thought that I want to put on the table. How often should a character's origin be revisited? I mean, we're dealing with a property or character that's being published in perpetuity across 50 years now, pretty close to four generations at this point. And I figured that as if our grandparents were the children buying this book off of Stan's children, the first issue I mean, and their kids had kids, and those were us, and then our children are the fourth generation. Or if you're a millennial, you're the fourth generation of Daredevil Reader. Congratulations. And that isn't even accounting for the age range within the generations where a child comes of reading age, discovers the comic or another grows out of the comic book reading hobby. So how often should the central thesis of a character be taken out of mothballs, dusted off, and retold? The prevailing sales theory is that readership generally cycles out every five years or so. But another theory pins it at about 15. That's when things need to be freshened up. And then we have to account for technology, specifically the internet. This provides access to Google and digital back issues. And we have to factor in the cost of physical back issues prior to the internet. Is the market charging a premium for a character's early issues? How accessible are they by way of the pocketbook? All of these factors lead me to the conclusion that to represent the origin would be an event every decade or so. It's not an exact science. It's just to freshen it up, make it contemporary, and make it available. And we're not talking about a full reboot, but tweaks. Tweaks like Tony Stark being in Afghanistan versus Vietnam, just for the slide rule effect of a of timeline. Now, figuring that, issue 53 came out in 1969, and this one was released roughly 11 years later, which means that it is indeed time. Compare that to Man Without Fear, which was released 13 years after this, and the decade mark is kind of present there. It's a little fuzzy, but it is present. But let's take a look at the issue beginning with the cover. 
which was penciled by Frank Miller, but inked by Wally Wood. That's right, the guy that gave the double Ds to Daredevil. And it shows Daredevil standing in the middle of a boxing ring with a look of anguish on his face as he holds the lifeless body of battling Jack Murdoch. It's simple, it's effective, it nails the core elements of Daredevil's origin right on the head. I mean, it's an amazingly condensed shot of imagery that perfectly says what it needs to say. In fact, this cover was actually aped a bit for the Marked for Death trade paperback, though it removed the boxing ring and Daredevil was surrounded by people who appeared in the stories. Now here, outside of the dead Jack Murdoch, Matt is alone, which is why it works so well. It's Daredevil alone with his grief, which is symbolic of how Daredevil is continuing this fight on his own. I mean, it's a punch to the gut, and that is pun intended. But the story inside is Exposé, written by Roger McKenzie, penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, colored by John Costanza, and colored by Glennis Ween. And we are greeted with the front page of the Daily Bugle, retelling Daredevil's battle with the Hulk last issue, which has left him in critical condition. Slowly, Daredevil's condition improves as the Black Widow keeps a bedside vigil, and visitors come and go, from the Avengers to the Fantastic Four, as well as Power Man and Iron Fist. Daredevil is on the mend and is actually talking of a future with the Black Widow when Ben Urick bursts into the hospital room. At first, the Widow is about to throw the reporter out on his ass, but Daredevil says that's okay. Let him come in, and decides to chat with him. Ben calls Daredevil out as Matt Murdock, and to prove it, he holds out a photo, demanding that Daredevil identify the image. Daredevil tries to shrug it off, but has to admit that he is indeed blind, and is indeed Matt Murdock. The image on the photo... The face of Jack Murdock. First off, Spider-Man isn't shown coming to check on Daredevil's condition. We have the freaking Avengers. You know, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, that whole thing. They're taking time out of their day to come see Daredevil and check on his progress. The FF find time to stop by and we know they're busy, but good old Peter Parker's just too booked up to check on his pal. But you know who wins this issue? Natasha. Black Widow. She sticks by Matt's side and that is awesome. Matt should marry this girl. He should definitely not, not get back with Heather, who's off with Rico, and embark on a mutually miserable, destructive relationship with her. Of course, let's be honest, Matt's not known for making the best life choices in the romance department. I do think it's kind of cool that Miller got a chance to draw some of Marvel's finest. We have Captain America, Black Widow, Mr. Fantastic. Miller gets to draw them, which is a treat for any artist, or maybe a nightmare. Because what if Miller drew Captain America with no ankles and a grossly disproportionate monstrosity of a chest? An artist should be ashamed of that kind of mistake, especially if it sees print. And we all know who I'm looking at right now, even if this is an audio medium. But given the circumstances that this is a daredevil that's on the mend, we're in the hospital, it's kind of a grim situation, the heroes are drawn very darkly. I mean, for example, Captain America has a lot of shadows, Thor looks very forlorn. It really does work for the book itself. However, I don't know if it would fly over in the Avengers core title, for example. Miller's style's just a little too gritty, which is what makes it great for Daredevil, not so great for other characters. In other news, Ben Yurik has horrible, horrible timing. Just as the Black Widow's about to lay a kiss on Daredevil, things are about to go well, Ben comes walking in the room. For starters, did he not see the sock on the door? I mean, everybody knows that's a clear signal that if the billy club is a-rockin', don't come knockin'. And secondly, if you are going to confront the superhero who beats up criminals with nothing but his bare hands and a, basically a stick, could you not wait till he gets out of the hospital? I mean, Daredevil was at death's door from his injuries. He spent a good week, two weeks, maybe more recovering. I mean, he's still in the backless gown, dude. A backless gown with his mask on. Okay, 
Let me take a sidebar here. As often as we have seen it in print and in animated form, I have never copped to the idea that a hospital would let a superhero's identity remain secret. For starters, who do they bill? I mean, is the public supposed to pay for care? Is that what happens now? That's not how hospitals work. The first thing they want is an insurance card. Secondly, this is impractical and irresponsible, as Daredevil was clearly bleeding and probably needed at least one transfusion. And how do they figure his blood type when he is a masked man on a table? Thirdly, allergies. With multiple medications being put in his system, Daredevil could have easily succumbed to the cure rather than the sickness. And then there is general curiosity. Some orderly changing a bedpan while Black Widow takes a meal in the cafeteria is not going to take a peek under the mask. Which, I mean, I may add, since that is assumptively the same mask, probably has dried blood and dirt and bacteria on it from the fight. And sure, I mean, there's a lot of honest, hardworking people in the world in the hospitals. But with Daredevil doped up and sleeping, the temptation has got to be impossible to resist. And maybe that thought process is why Yurik was so adamant about rushing into the room. He was afraid that a nurse or other hospital staff was going to beat him to the punch. And of course, Yurik's litmus test doesn't necessarily hold water. It's not very thought out in a way. I mean, it works, but technically it probably shouldn't have. Symbolically, holding up a picture of Jack Murdock seems good on the surface, but what if Matt Murdock was actually not Daredevil? What if it was somebody else? What if Mark Matthews was Daredevil, and he had sight? What if a sighted Mark Matthews had never even heard of Jack Murdock? That picture wouldn't really fly. But the ruse does work, and Daredevil gives up the fight pretty quickly. He goes from telling Yurik he doesn't have to prove anything, I'm not Daredevil, that's ridiculous, to just spilling out his origin story. But that's the power of the Daily Bugle. One of New York's biggest tabloids and thinking about the paper got me to thinking even further. So yeah, I took to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and Google Maps and took a look at where Yurik's workplace would be. Yes, it's more geography nerdiness, but only a tidbit. Now the handbook lists the Daily Bugle as sitting at 39th and 2nd in New York City, which is about a mile from where Matt's brownstone is supposed to be at 448 East 66th Street. However, when taking a look at the street view and a little bit of Googling, this area is mostly residential. There aren't any office spaces that would uh, suit a newspaper office or anything. It's just mostly condos, apartments, things like that. Which is why the movies use the Flatiron Building, which is about a mile over from where the handbook lists the offices. The Flatiron Building not only suits the needs of a newspaper office, it looks cool as well, with its triangular shape. The Flatiron Building sits at 175 East 5th Avenue on a triangular block, and the building looks awesome. It's kind of deco, it's got a goth influence, I guess. It was architecture was described, but I didn't follow the description, so I apologize. But the important thing is it's right in the thick of things for New York. And this was actually the building that was depicted as the Daily Bugle in the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon as well. And for me, it's, it fits better. It's a more real, solid location for my unintentional series within a series... Within a series? Daredevil's New York, as I'm going to call it. It creates another pin in the map, and it feels like this would be the place I would officially christen as the official location of Daily Bugle. So what, what have we had in this Daredevil's New York series within a series within a series? Uh, we've had Matt's House, Josie's Bar, and now the Daily Bugle. Oh, and Coney Island. I mean, we're starting to form a nice walking tour of New York for Daredevil fans. Either way, my official word is that the Flatiron Building is the real-world location for the Daily Bugle, or at least the real-world analog. Let's use that term, since we are dealing with fictional characters comparing them to the real world. Ben Yurik's stomping grounds, when he isn't stomping inappropriately into hospital rooms. But his ploy works, and Matt takes us on a journey. A journey we've been on before. So let's open the book back up and take a look at the retelling of the origin.
With the topic of discussion being Jack Murdoch, Matt takes Ben on a flashback journey. We see once again Matt making the promise to hit only the books and being bullied by the neighborhood kids, and we revisit Jack Murdoch's fall from grace as he is muscled into signing with the fixer, forced to sign the contract on his knees on the floor. And there is the fateful accident, this time we see it play out from within the truck, hauling the radioactive waste as the driver suffers a heart attack. There is the swerve, Matt saves the old man, canister to the eyes, and then darkness. Things play out as we know them. Matt recovers, discovers his radar sense, and goes to college to meet Foggy. Jack climbs the ranks of the boxing world thanks to the fixer and makes the fateful decision not to go down, winning his fight and saying, this one's for you, Matt. And of course, a short time later, Jack is shot dead, and Matt makes the decision to avenge his father one way or another. Again, we walk down the same familiar road, and this little bit brings us to the big question of Man Without Fear and its validity as an origin tale. Does it jive up with what we have here? Most of the pieces fit up to a point. Matt makes the promise to his father, but that doesn't eradicate the slapping scene from Man Without Fear or the internal monologue about rules. That's still in the tapestry here, I should say, between the cracks. It fits in still. The bullying is still in place, as it was before with no contradictions. However, here's the sticking point. When Jack signs with the Fixer. Now, that doesn't necessarily line up as we saw it in Man Without Fear. Still lines up with Daredevil number one. All of this with Daredevil number one is a little expanded. It doesn't negate Daredevil number one at all. Now, in this telling, as with the original, Jack is signing with the Fixer to further his boxing career, which has always been questioned. Because if you're an honest boxer, why would you sign with somebody named the Fixer? I mean... Wouldn't you put together he fixes fights? But the act itself is an act of utter desperation. There's only one thing that Jack Murdoch knows how to do, and that's hitting people. Now, in Man Without Fear, the fixer muscles Jack into being muscle for organized crime. In both, Jack is, at his core, desperately trying to do right by Matt with the only skill he has. So they don't jive on a technical level, but thematically. It's the same building, but with different hallways to the same room. However, however... I do have a bit of a no prize of sorts here. I'm not trying to defend either. I'm not trying to reconcile them. I'm not trying to promote one over the other. One is a point-for-point -point retelling of the original origin. The other is an innovation on a theme. However, taking this no prize, it adds some depth to the story and to Matt. So here it is. Man Without Fear is told from a third-person perspective, where this is from Matt's recollection, just like it is in Daredevil number one, just like it is in Daredevil number 53. It's Matt's point of view. It's Daredevil recounting the events for Ben in this particular instance, and therefore, since Matt is actually making a case for Daredevil, for his life, for his decisions, leaving out the muscling for the mob may be a key element. It may be intentional. Because let's be honest, let's look at Yurik. He's checked his facts. He's competent. He knows about Jack's final fight. He knows about the association with the Fixer. He knows how Jack died. These can all be traced. These have been traced. Ben has been hitting the streets of Hell's Kitchen and getting these pieces of the puzzle. What Ben doesn't have is the events that happen behind closed doors or, you know, within a criminal empire or mini empire in terms of the fixer. Because let's look at Man Without Fear. Matt was the only witness at Fogwell's gym when Jack was forced into being a collector for the mob. The only other people there, Jack, who's dead, the fixer, who's dead, and Slade. Well, Slade's not talking from prison if he's still there. Who's to say that Slade hasn't been shivved? Anyway, at best, Ben may have found some low-level crony that was involved, but that's not a reliable source. Ben, being the smart reporter, would have dismissed that. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This isn't the intention of this story. This isn't something inherent in the story itself. This was a straightforward retelling, but it does make this story a little bit richer to think that Matt is presenting a well-reasoned argument 
and glossing over a few rough bits. Let us never, ever forget that Matt is a very, very competent lawyer. He knows how to stage a speech, how to stage a witness. He knows how to direct a line of questioning to create sympathy for a victim. And here, he would know that he's in a position to be sympathetic. I mean, he's in a backless gown, recovering. How much more vulnerable can he be? Again, not what's on the page per the original intent, but how cool is the idea that Matt is swinging Yurik to his side? And everything from here to a point jives with Man Without Fear. Because Jack is told to throw a fight, the fight isn't thrown, Jack dies for it. So that's a nice way to link up Man Without Fear in this retelling, if you're doing the full read-through with me. Now, of course, the depiction of Jack's demise was a bit more graphic in Man Without Fear, but I chalk that up to a difference in the medium as a whole, as well as Slade being a big, muscle-bound man and being moderately large here. That's an artistic interpretation. If it sounds like I'm bending over backwards to put Man Without Fear into context, not quite the case. But if I can, you know, why not? If the, if the evidence is there, why not? Why not enrich our reading experience? And Matt, of course, becomes determined to avenge his father. Now, he's talking to Ko, who you'll remember was Ben's source a few issues back, sort of the janitor worker at uh, the, the gym. Again, this is a scene that didn't happen to Man Without Fear, but you kind of see the linkage, because we jump from Matt at the morgue to Matt taking his vengeance. Which should take us to familiar territory with that story. Instead, it takes us to another realm of familiar territory. Let's jump back in real quick. The story picks up where Daredevil number one is in the original Daredevil number one began. A card game, Daredevil rushing in, wearing his brown and yellow costume. And the thugs are easy targets, but it is the fixer and the man who pulled the trigger, Slade, that Daredevil wants. And he calls them out, standing in the middle of a boxing ring, boxing gloves in his hands, and he tells his father's killers, it's time to pay the devil his due. Slade enters the ring as the fixer runs away. Slade you know, didn't stand a chance. The man without fear is quickly in pursuit of the fixer after leaving Slade in a bloody, bruised, unconscious heap. And Matt chases the fixer into the subway, hearing the criminal's heartbeat increase until the fixer dies of a heart attack. With his father avenged, Matt thinks, This one is for you, Dad. Back in the present, after hearing the tale, Yurik mulls over Matt's story and says that he's about to do something that may be the hardest decision he's ever made. Ben lights a cigarette and then takes the lighter to his notes, burning his research and throwing it in the trash. And Ben turns to leave and quietly says, This one is for you, Matt. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I don't have a no prize for this bit. In Man Without Fear, this sequence plays out without the costume and prior to Matt going to college. I'm sure the perspective once again could be played in. But the one remaining tie in terms of presentation is Daredevil standing in the ring calling Slade out. What I will say is this is a progression between the original Daredevil number one and by proxy Daredevil number 53 and Man Without Fear. It is a progression towards the way we will see it play out in Man Without Fear. And again, as I said, you could look at this as Matt telling the story to sway Ben from revealing his secret, which is somewhat valid from a revisionist standpoint. Or you can accept that Man Without Fear replaces this, or disregard Man Without Fear altogether. It's completely your choice, and they're all valid. Ultimately, this rendition of the origin fails to really change anything. As a whole, it's not slavish to the original Daredevil number one, as Gene Colan did in Daredevil number 53, redrawing the original script. But the only two major elements added were the humiliating way that Jack was forced to sign with the fixer down on his knees on the floor, and I chalked that up to Jack being more fully realized at this stage. Because Daredevil is a more fully realized, fleshed out character after, you know, a hundred and some odd issues. And so we understand Jack more, we understand what his effect on Matt was, and should be, and who Jack should be as a result of the effect. Which is kind of an Ouroboros, it's kind of a snake eating its own tail. And then we add the perspective of a driver having a heart attack leading to Matt's accident. So we're seeing a different perspective from the same 
accident, which, I mean, if you're going to have the same scene play over and over and over again, fair, fair deuces. Either way, this issue serves two functions. One is to touch base with the origin to make sure that readers of the 1980s have that frame of reference. But the second, and slightly more relevant, is the introduction of a new ally for Daredevil in Ben Urich. Urich becomes a big character of his own right. He's even represented in the movie and cartoons. He becomes a big part of Civil War. And Urich has served a small role up to this point. As a point of contact for Daredevil or somebody investigating Daredevil. But now he's in a position to really assist Daredevil and do some good. Now he's not going to assist him in the fighting portion, but Ben is a nice addition. I really, really like Ben Urich. I like him a lot. He's a straight shooter, he's reliable, and he seeks justice and truth. And if that gives him a story for the Bugle, all the better for it. Those two are exclusive, or mutually exclusive for Ben. But the final scene shows why I like Ben so much. It's the level of integrity that he has, which is unparalleled. Seeing that Matt as Daredevil makes a difference in the world, Ben takes the high road, understanding why. Daredevil makes a difference. Why Daredevil does what he does. Because look at it this way. How many Jack Murdochs can be avoided? How many Mr. Hydes can be taken off the streets by just not running this story? I mean, now Ben is seeing that Matt's not in it just for kicks. He understands that Daredevil is a responsibility, not a hobby. Matt's not running around in, in red tights to sow some wild oats. He's a kid from the streets who took blows and wants to clean up those streets to avoid blows for others. Yurik is a very important aspect of the supporting cast to me. He has a lot of elements of characters that I really like, all mulled into one, which puts him, I mean, way up on the list for me. Because he's somewhere between Alfred, he's a confidant, he's sort of a voice of reason, Commissioner Gordon, also kind of a confidant and voice of reason, and kind of a, well, let's be honest, a little bit easier for plot exposition as well. There are elements of Lois Lane and Perry White with the journalistic integrity and the goal of using journalism to better the world. Don't let me try to present this as Ben as a perfect, moral, perfect man. I'm not trying to say that. But he does give a common man aspect to these stories. And at times he keeps Daredevil on the right path. Now exposing Daredevil's identity and the way that Yurik's instincts, his detective skills, fleshed out a hunch could have put him on easy street. I just want to be clear on what he's giving up here. Because we're going to find out Yurik doesn't live the high life by any means. He's not made of money. In fact, he struggles to make ends meet. But instead of succumbing to a career-making story... One that would ease his financial burdens, open doors out of the Daily Bugle to other opportunities, Ben does the right thing. Just maybe not the best thing for him. Now, I say the right thing, I mean, insofar as keeping a masked vigilante in business is the right thing, but we know Daredevil, we know he's a good guy. And we see this exact moment, this is how resonant this is, we see this moment play out in the live-action movie. So I have to say it. I just have to say it as we close out here. Because of how awesome this moment and how great this character is and how richer Daredevil's world just got, I have to say, this one's for you, Ben Urich. If you want to check this story out for yourself, it is reprinted in Daredevil Marked for Death trade paperback, Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 6, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1 trade paperback, and Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus. And of course, Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And with that, we kind of close out the stories that were collected in the Marked for Death trade paperback, which makes me a bit sad. I mean, the stories were specifically included because of their relevance in that trade paperback. And it's been good to revisit these. Brings back memories of living in a place I called the Dave Cave, which was... It was an apartment that this lady rented out in her basement. Um, it was furnished, which was one of the reasons I took it. And the, the price was good, but it had this big king-size bed 
which was excellent. It's just an excellent perch for reading comics. And I remember reading that trade in that Dave Cave, but it was just good memories to revisit. I really enjoyed this trade. I've pulled it out maybe once every every year since then over the last decade. So to represent these here has been a privilege once again. So thank you for joining me on this journey through the Marked for Death trade by way of the Omnibus. Now here's the part where normally I would read your emails, but sadly it appears there are no emails in my inbox this week. There's no comments, no iTunes reviews. I'm starting to think you don't love me anymore. I'm starting to doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Or, you know, this is bound to happen now and then. People have busy lives and don't always allow them to pop out an email. So let me take this moment to give you a sad update. My Secret Wars Daredevil figure is in worse shape. If you recall, I talked about getting the figure maybe... I got it about a year ago or so. In the package, it looked fairly pristine. But when I took it out, the red on the arms and legs, the head, it bled off onto my fingers. So despite wanting to display it out of package because everything I buy is intended for display, I placed it back in, taped the package shut. But the face has started to fade and the black markings that designate the costume are starting to come off despite not being handled for a year or so. So it's decaying on its own. And this makes me sad, especially since it's a collectible that I really wanted in my collection. This was the first Daredevil action figure. And sure, there are other Daredevil figures in my collection, but this one is special. I'm not throwing it out or anything, don't get me wrong. I'm, <laughs> this, I'm not eulogizing an action figure, but it still kind of sucks. But you know, this brings me to something I want to do on a mini rant here while I'm on the topic of action figures. Something that bothers me about Daredevil action figures is the accessories that have come with pretty much every iteration of Daredevil in action figure form. See, somehow, toy companies have got it in their head that Daredevil uses nunchucks. Because every rendition of the Billy Club has a short piece of string between the two sections making it look like a pair of nunchucks. Which is not what the Billy Club is, it's not its function. So far, there have been two, count them, two figures across multiple manufacturers that buck that trend. One is the Toy Biz Marvel Super Heroes figure, which just pretty much omits it completely. It basically packages Daredevil with a grappling hook cannon that looks nothing like a Billy Club. The other... Hasbro in their three and three quarter size Marvel superheroes line. This figure is sweet. The sculpt is great. It looks gorgeous. I got it out of the Daredevil and Bullseye two pack, but it also has a more traditional Billy Club in two pieces with no string. The best part is the two sections click together and they make a more cane or staff like piece. So the best buy in the action figure realm as term in terms of Daredevil, the Daredevil and Bullseye two pack from Hasbro. And that has been a random minute with J. David Weeder. This is what happens when I don't have emails. Next week I may sing if there are no emails and nobody wants that. But that brings us to the end of episode 19. Next week, when we covered Daredevil 165, we co-opt another Spider-Man villain when Dr. Octopus stops by. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one. They call a man without fear Never far away Whenever danger's near There's devil fight for what is right There's devil fight for you tonight Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com to subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics. 
and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you.